1: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner. My guest today is Katie Rios, author of This is America, Race, Gender, and Politics in America's Musical Landscape, published in 2021 by Lexington Books. Looking at an eclectic mix of different artists and cultural products from Laurie Anderson to Hamilton, Rios examines what she sees as a shared language of cultural and political critique. These artists take on problems of race and gender that have deep roots in American history, often by championing current social movements that have swept the nation, such as Me Too and Black Lives Matter. While a musicologist by training, Rios is concerned with more than the sonic signifiers of political dissent and resistance. She examines the significance of dance, visual art, and of the visual elements in music videos and special performances. Thank you for joining me today, Katie, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Kristen, and for that very generous introduction. I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to talk to you about this really fascinating book. I'd like to start the interview just asking you how you came to this uh, particular topic.
2: I just heard uh, a wonderful podcast interview with one of my friends, uh, Shaden Golden-Pershbacher, who wrote, uh, talking about her own book, Queer Country, and she put perfectly into words the experience that led me to start working on this book and she said something along the lines of when a song is swirling around in my head I feel like it's calling to me to do research and to look into it and to pay attention and that is exactly what happened when this is america was released for me because I heard the song, I heard the song actually before I saw the video, and I had friends, I had students, I speak to this in the introduction, but just people who know that I uh, love and appreciate Childish Gambino's work, I'm a fan of the show Atlanta as well, (laughs) live near Atlanta, I love hip-hop, particularly Atlanta hip-hop and trap styles, so I had a lot of people reaching out to me Asking, okay, have you you've heard the song, but have you seen the video? You need to see the video. And so I thought here I have not only in my own head this song that's calling to me, but literally people in my life who are reaching out to me, calling to me to to look into the song and to talk about it. And so that was something that was really powerful in terms of the signifiers that I was noticing in the video and how much I wanted to read about it. And, uh, that was, that was a big motivator for me to, to start my work.
1: Well, perhaps that's a great place to start then. Um, uh, is talking about this is America, which is uh, I think is one of only a couple um, works of art that you come back to in every single chapter. It seems like it's a real touchstone touchstone for you. So, why was that so powerful for you as kind of a central
2: um, work in the in the um, book? Part of the video's disturbing appeal is its juxtaposition of shocking violence amidst what is perceived to be jubilance. Uh, The video opens in a way that makes it seem as though it might be a happy song. And it's not until he turns his face to the audience again this concept of gaze or who is watching whom that is this thread throughout the book that you start to see that there are these distortions uh, that he appears to be in physical discomfort and then of course about 45 seconds in the shocking violence the first act of shocking violence occurs And there were so many parallels to, in some cases, events that have actually happened. Uh, The shooting uh, at the church in Charleston, um, the violence that's captured that depicts uh, the experiences for many Americans um, that I saw as touchstones for the other works that I was talking about, and in effect, even though he's turning his gaze to us in the video, we're we're watching, we are watching him. But it is as though it's this very surreal experience of the audience being the ones, the the audience being the the group being watched. Like the action is called on to us. About what possible next steps we might take, given this horrific um, again, juxt- juxtaposition of of joy amidst violence and and the Jim, all of the Jim Crow imagery from the way that he's you know like this caricature to the way he's distorting his his facial expressions to the way he's holding his body his stance is almost exactly like those 19th century depictions of Jim Crow. And as I know I'm I'm veering off of the question a little bit but uh I think the Zip Coon character as well the 19th century Zip Coon with the more fashionable uh, stylish uh chic version still a caricature but even in the way that he's dressed. And so I heard loud and clear uh, questions for us to consider in terms of what next steps we might take. And so that was such a grounding point for me in looking at all of the other examples where I saw similar depictions of America in a state of chaos.
1: So that brings us to, I think, what I saw as one of the organizing Frameworks or sort of um, maybe analytical terms that you use throughout this idea of encoded gestures in music. Um, And would you say that you found in uh, This is America kind of a work that's using so many of these gestures? Or I mean, maybe I should ask a, a more basic question What do you mean by encoded gestures in music? Like, what? What does that framework do for you?
2: Absolutely, yes. So one of the things I'm really interested in, in my own research, in my writing, in my teaching, is to try to make the work understandable from as wide of a viewpoint as possible. To make it accessible. This isn't necess- This is not a strict au- academic academic audience um, that I'm appealing to with this book i think that there are so many valuable maybe non-traditional non score based kinds of analyses that we can use and so in some of these encoded gestures i was so struck for example i've i've talked about the jim crow imagery the the depictions that have been much written about in the video for this is america to the concept of who is watching whom that that issue of gaze and even when a performer on a video might turn his or her or their gaze to the camera and it's us we feel like we're we're being watched i'm i'm really fascinated by that to the way people are moving their bodies it might be lighting it might be the way that people aren't moving their bodies it, that stillness can have such a Tremendous impact in a performance, um, and those again kinds of modes of analysis for me were really compelling and worthy of discussion and research. So one of the the th-
1: maybe encoded gestures that you're talking about is this depiction of violence. Um, and I was really interested in what you had to say about um, one of the critiques that is often leveled against not just um, This Is America, but other other um, works that... Uh, expose the victimization of black people and, and all, sort of people in all sorts of minoritized communities. So they're sort of the violence enacted against their bodies, the victim is, their victimization. And you get um, sort of an enduring complaint about um, what some people call trauma porn or black trauma porn, that it's just, um, and that it's this depiction of violence that doesn't really do any good. And that is, um, too oriented toward the white gaze, towards showing white people all the terrible things that are happening that people in those communities are well aware of, and I'd love to to have you talk a little bit about what your response is to that, because many of the works that you um, talk about are definitely could be open or have been opened to that. You know, people have made that critique of it, or they could be even even if that is not something that a
2: particular commentator has talked about. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you for that question. And I know this is a podcast, so people can't see our videos as I'm vigorously nodding in appreciation while you ask that question. Uh, I think uh, Tiffany Foster had a, a blog post of black girl in Maine, um, speaking exactly to this point and talking about the concept of, of this video as trauma porn and that, uh, that basically white people had become obsessed with breaking down every little movement. and uh, what's happening in the video and my entire book is, as we've been discussing, based on that premise. And so this is definitely something that I that made me negotiate imperfectly my own whiteness. At the same time, I think that there's value in that discomfort. And George Yancey has written very thoughtfully about this, about you know, what happens when white people talk about race. And it's something that I felt was important to address precisely because it's uncomfortable. Childish Gambino is not trying to make a obviously he's not trying to make us feel comfortable in this video. And I think that the stasis that is present throughout the video that we haven't moved past the violence that's being depicted. We, we see the reenactment of events that have happened that have caused inexplicable grief that even though he does not overtly call us to action, I, I felt compelled to, to act. And I suppose writing this book is just one step. It's a response to that. You know, people, I guess, can write about something upsetting all day, and that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But I wanted to start speaking about it.
1: Um, another figure that runs through this book. So This Is America... that video and that performance and your ideas about it come up a lot as you show how that video sort of is encapsulating things that maybe other artists are doing in a particular song only, you know, Mm -hmm. just some of those images come up or just some of those ideas and you're you know, sort of, but that it, um, Childish Gambino manages to stuff a lot into that that short song and video. Um, But another figure that comes up, and I think in almost every chapter, is Colin Kaepernick in one way Mm -hmm. or another. So why do you think he is um, someone that so many Black creators um, refer to in their work?
2: Hmm. Well, talk about an encoded gesture of resistance (laughs) and his choice to kneel. Um, a silent gesture he's he's not moving I'm thinking of the absence of I mean the the, so you move to kneel that involves body movement but then there was stillness and such such power in that statement and there were so the people who opposed it of course said oh and, and for that matter Beyonce's 2016 formation performance at the Super Bowl that are that I talk about, that said the football field is not the ideal place for a a political platform that has no place there. And i I think I keep returning to it because it's actually the perfect place for such a platform because you have so many people who are seeing it and who are receiving that. I don't want to call his act a performance. it's a it's an encoded act of resistance. Um, but to to see it and to receive it and the people who support it, now all of a sudden, you have millions more people who are aware of what happened because of the platform. And so I think that is another important thread and why he his name does recur throughout the book. And it just shows the power too of, of the medium that we're not just talking about something that happened and people heard about it at a live event. There are, I don't know the, the number, the exact number of people who saw it while it was aired on TV, but the, the effect that it's had since has definitely been recurring. And I think that is reflected in my book as well.
1: Um, you do have a, you know, we've, we've so far I've asked you about the two Figures that come throughout the book But each chapter mm-hmm. has um, Sort of discrete case studies Perhaps or examples And they come like from case study, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it comes from a wide Variety of places you know Lori Anderson who's more I, I sort of think of her as more on the Kind of high art conceptual art stand And then you've got Then, then you've got Hamilton and you've got Beyonce and ran and Giddens And you know this is a wide variety of different Artists Um uh, a lot of other hip hop figures. Eminem is another that comes to mind. How did you
2: choose your examples? Mm-hmm. I I wanted to add if I could just tag on to the last question that you had about the recurring themes that we talked about. I it strikes me that Lori Anderson is also a recurring figure. Even if I don't mention her by name, I try to if I'm if I'm citing her. But those questions about. Um, about what is pain, what is suffering, how do you tell a story, what questions do we ask, these kinds of existential questions, I felt like that was also a thread throughout the book. For the the tracks that I'm, or the performances that I'm considering, to go back to the first question that you had, these are very much songs that have or performances that have been in my ear uh, very much on my mind, very meaningful to me. It's a a playlist. I developed a Spotify playlist for it to look for examples, particularly examples that have videos. Almost all of the examples that I discuss have some kind of video that you can also watch in addition to listening to the tracks. But that was certainly the the playlist can be longer i'm going to continue to add to it you know maybe there will be another maybe i can do an updated edition of this book with the same title and in 10 years and it would you know be a very well i hope it would be a very different kind of mix of songs maybe we can see that there's been some tremendous kind of progress and movement with all of the reckoning that's been happening in the past few years but these are works that I think reflect those kinds of opening questions that Laurie Anderson asks. That I that I list in chapter one. It's not exhaustive by any means. <laughs> um, I don't make that claim.
1: Well, let's talk about Laurie Anderson a little bit more, because you're right. I should have added that as as those questions do recur. I, I did um, not mean to correct
2: you. I no, just no, thought no. It.
1: I didn't take it as a correction. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, I, I think that's a really good point. And, and actually, um, I think of all of your examples, that's probably the one that, you um, the largest number of readers or listeners to this podcast might, they might not be as familiar with Laurie Anderson or, or if they know her name, perhaps not familiar with um, the uh, art uh, um, installation that she organized called One Year yeah. of Resistance. And I was yeah. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about One Year of Resistance and Laurie Anderson and sort of how you, you are um, analyzing her in,
2: in this book. Sure, yes. So she was one of three co-organizers for this project, One Year of Resistance, which was in response to the one-year anniversary of the inauguration of our former president, (laughs) and as a kind of protest, because after the election, people had protested by shutting down. And so they thought it would be more of a statement to make a call to artists to submit it could be poetry it it, in some cases the installations that happened were dance all all of these gestures that i've been talking about and so keen to study and this particular project that um is that one of the works is featured on the cover of the book that vivid neon sign uh, I'll, I guess I'll describe it again, because we're on the podcast, but um, it's an outline of the contiguous states and neon yellow. And then there's a neon letters in the center in red, it looks urgent, the The colors look urgent, very striking. It says in, uh closed for quotation renovation, end quote. And then at the northeast, southwest sides of these contiguous states, there are exit signs. And so this was one of the contributions uh, from Tuva Alapur, really stunning work in response to Laurie Anderson's call for for works in, in this concept of one year of resistance. They had a bibliography of uh, uh, James, James Baldwin was listed on there. They had all sorts of inspiring works that might compel, might impel artists to, to react and to turn something in. And so I saw the online gallery for, um, for One Year of Resistance, which is just incredible. I think I have a, a URL in, in my footnotes for it for people interested to see it. But it there were dozens of, of just incredible works. And so in the first part of that chapter, Anderson is perhaps obliquely involved. She did not create the artwork, of course, but she was part of the force of, of women, powerful, strong women, organizing this exhibit and the gallery. And the, I didn't even know about it after I had already decided that I wanted to talk about Lori Anderson, who to kind of lead with her and those existential questions that I mentioned before, and I was just blown away that this even existed. It was like something had just fallen into my lap as I'm doing this, the the exciting part about research, right? And so when when I saw this gallery and just so inspired by all of the incredible artwork, I thought, well, I guess I could just try to track down the artists and see if anyone wants to talk to me. I, I don't know. i worked working out this. Way. And so a couple of them very generously responded. And I've had so many meaningful conversations, phone calls, emails, exchanges with these wonderful artists. And so that was, that was exciting. And, and I'm glad that, and I think I special thanks to Tuba Alipur and to Joel Trenton, for letting me use their artwork and because it's, all, you know, it's always fun to have pictures in a book too, right? So yeah, <laughs> there's some, there's some wonderful imagery and same to Laurie Anderson in, in the images that are in chapter one.
1: Um, so I, I found um, one of the things that sort of also runs through the book is just how much what we're talking about for most of these artists, our response to something that happened while Donald Trump was president or because of his election. Obviously, one year of resistance is an obvious one. But then there was just this kind of explosion of activism among artists in those years. And not that artists haven't been plenty activists before and after, but but perhaps there was um, an urgency about what they were doing. Or, or, and, and I think also sort of some more mainstream uptake uptake of some things that perhaps would not have gotten the kind of publicity if if there if if Donald Trump wasn't president and there wasn't this sort of um, um, I don't know wellspring of, of resistance to, to, his, to him as president, but also more importantly, I think, to the forces that uh, were supporting him and um, bringing all of that to light. So, and this book seems to me is also born of that kind of same um, impulse to action, um, if I can <laughs> be so bold <laughs> as, uh, you know, that it seems like that, you know, that <laughs> that seems part of that
2: it felt like an emergency i wanted the cover to represent a state of emergency and so i was so grateful to tuba when she gave me permission to use the image and i you know anderson speaks to that frankly i i reluctant to use this word but very talented and very able way that trump had to in communicating with his supporters in this kind of direct language that spoke to a very specific population. And that rhetorically, he was very, he, he's, well, we have the anti-vaxxers now condemning Trumps. So I was going to say, he's still, still good at that, at, at speaking to his base with this kind of gut instinct. Unfortunately, that's also what is so terrifying is that, that power that he's, Held. And I think what made so many people, including me, feel called to to speak to that, to to react to it. And then, of course, you know, as I'm writing, the the pandemic begins unfolding, and it just felt like every day there was a new emergency to write about. And I thought, at some point, I've got to limit what I'm covering because it. Otherwise, I'm going to be writing this book for the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that that there is definitely something so relevant about these works occurring mostly within the years of uh, during the Trump years and how people are responding to that. That Hamilton, of all things, could have become representative of what party you might be affiliated with after pence was in the audience and they made a call to to him and trump was really offended and started making fun of hamilton and so it it's just it i would say it's uncanny but it's really unsurprising given the way that he spoke to his base right and how good he was at that this episode is brought to you
1: by sax.com Well, you know, I wonder if part of that was, um, I think people like us who study this sort of thing know that all art is political in one way or another. Like it's, you really can't, you know, you can't get out of it even if the text itself seems unpolitical, the subtext always is, or the context always is. But that wasn't as obvious, I think, to people who don't study this kind of thing for a living. And, um, you know, the idea of, of art being so politicized is was really um I I think one that people had not noticed or had forgotten about in sort of the year in, in sort of the the sort of several decades where people were able were were making a big distinction between politics and other f- Parts of their lives, which does not happen anymore, and I think that Trump did not that it wasn't not that we didn't already live in a politically polarized world, but I think the Trump presidency uh, really drove home to everyone that anything you know that everything is politicized, and and that and Hamilton I think is a good example of that, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about Hamilton now because that is the work that ended. Yes, well, who couldn't, right? Um, it's the work that you know. It's the last thing that you consider, and one of the things about Hamilton prior to this—it's uh, uh, not even a confrontation with Trump. This, the, I mean, with with Pence. This this conversation or you know call to Pence was that it really had um, had adherents from all sides of the political. Um, uh, spectrum that everyone found something in hamilton that they found that worked with their political ideology and that ends when trump attacks it um and um uh so as you po- I, I mean it's a good example of that sort of polarizing way you know that it's not just politicized but it becomes polarized within that politicized mm-hmm. um kind of atmosphere. An- an-
2: anecdotally Absolutely, and anecdotally too. I I had to crack up because I was reading one of the interviews um, with Laurie Anderson, who starts the book. uh, Who coincidentally, uh, uh, I guess, hated Hamilton. She couldn't even (laughs) sit through it. I thought, Oh oh no, here I've got my the anchors here on my book. But um, yeah, yeah, I was really struck too, as you said, with how it spoke to a number of people before it became politicized and it has it has politics built into it that's its framework and the way that miranda is subverting the images that we might expect to see for the founding fathers which is something that he is still negotiating and and questioning i'm i'm blanking for a second now on this scholar who was ishmael Reed. um who was very, very critical of Miranda's choice to to use char- minority characters who are representing character our founding fathers who were not necessarily myor- minorities and in some cases owned slaves, and um, so he uh, he he was very critical of that and and I think. Miranda continues to to respond to some of the critiques that have happened, um, not surprisingly, in a very thoughtful, engaging way. I think these are, again, just going back to this idea of works acquiring additional meaning upon repeated listening or repeated viewings, that this is something that's possible for the creators, too.
1: Well, you do um, address this critique of the um, race-conscious casting that he uses in Hamilton, and I found your analysis quite interesting. Can you share a little bit more about your thinking about the effect of the of those casting decisions?
2: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So by placing these. Um, Perceived minority characters, you can't always, of course, tell by looking at somebody what their the, what their race is, but we can see on the stage that we have characters of color representing founding fathers who we know were not minorities and in some cases owned slaves. And in my analysis, I, I go through a number of steps to argue that he's actually subverting the power model by placing those characters. Here again, as an encoded gesture, it's it's very visible. We can see it on the stage that we see these minority characters as the founding fathers, as the leaders. Well, what happens when we retell the story through that lens? When we flip the script so that those who have traditionally been perceived to be not in power are now the ones calling the shots? Nope. Pun intended for my shot, the great number, but we're seeing that play out on stage. And then on top of that, you have in an American musical, the majority of the numbers are in a hip hop style, or they're rapped, or you're hearing some kind of reference to the framework of hip hop, which is aurally, again, kind of subverting maybe our expectations for what would happen in a more Traditional, for lack of a better word, uh, more traditional musical, or what our expectations might be for for the Broadway musical, and I think it's fascinating. There are things I've I've watched the the uh, Disney Plus version a few times since it came out last summer, and there are things because I know we. Kristen, you and I were lucky enough to be able to see the musical with the original Broadway cast before the tickets got crazy expensive, just having heard about it or read about it. Um, but there are things that I find so striking that I didn't, uh, that I notice and appreciate with uh, with additional viewings. Um, like David Diggs has the swagger when he walks, talk about a body movement, uh, a, a swagger Regardless of whether he's playing Marquis de Lafayette or Jefferson, that or, or the style of the number, like what I miss is not really a hip hop number, but he still has that kind of hip hop movement that we would associate, you know, that swag that's there throughout the entire musical, even when he's just walking across the stage. It's so powerful.
1: Now, one of the things that strikes me about what you were saying in the book and just now about this casting is that um, at the time period, these founding fathers were resisting what they saw as oppression. and And really, what is the language for resisting oppression in America today? it is not classical music. It's not country music. You know, it's not, it's not, um, uh, you know, other forms of music that are associated with white people so much. It is hip hop. It is soul. It is gospel. You know, it is these black musical styles. And, and who else better to tell us about what it is like to resist oppression than, Than people who continue to suffer oppression, right? Um, So, um, but I do think Miranda suffers um, over and over in his work from being the only one. And he's sort of expected to answer all questions. So he does not, there's not a lot of talk of slavery in Hamilton, which is a repeated point of critique. Um, But tell me the musical that talks about slavery. (laughs) <laughs> you know, already. Right. You know, he with um, the movie version of Into the Heights, there was a lot of critique about and he even apologized for not having Afro Latino actors. But, you know, if there were 15 musicals that had a mostly Latinx cl- cast, he wouldn't have to represent every single you know, Latinx person um, in his cast. And I I think that he really does suffer from uh, the problem that so many uh, creators from minoritized communities suffer from, which is they're the only ones in the space. And they're expected to uh, create artwork that's just more sprawling than, you know, I mean, how, how do you create artwork that satisfies every problem of representation in your particular field? And I think... I think this that those sorts of critiques often come out I think of the frustration of of not having another work to say well Hamilton doesn't do it but this one does but there is no other right. this one.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think this is something that you you and I even sat down and talked about when we were looking at this a few years ago at, at the an academic conference is would would people have been talking as much if, say, we had a in Hamilton a cast of all white women or something representing the founding fathers? Would it have been the force? Would people have have reacted in the way that this that they have to the potentially controversial aspects of it? There's I don't think there's any one right way of Casting, I would never claim that. But the way that he's doing it again to kind of subvert the expectations of the audience, not only historically but also aesthetically with the style, the predominant style of hip hop. I think, as as some people have recently ar- argued, it's becoming the predominant popular style, hip hop as pop. Um, I was just in a session for the a Smithsonian roundtable uh historically speaking how corporate branding impacted um hip-hop and the the panelists spoke to that and and you just mentioned it a few minutes ago that hip-hop is now not only what we associate with uh language of resistance some i know trisha rose i think has argued that maybe we can start to move away from just this Kind of one fits one size fits all as as resistance, but for now, if we're we're looking at as a language of resistance, predominantly so right now, it's also such a tremendously popular genre. (laughs) Uh, So there's there's that to negotiate, and I you said too for you know hip hop being the most obvious, um, maybe less so. I think that there are some artists who have and you gave country as an example, I think that there are some artists who are making an effort to say, Hey, this is actually country music is actually a genre that is also resistance. It's representing a minority voice. I mean, Rhiannon Giddens um, has gone through tireless efforts to, in educating her audiences about the black origins of country music. And, I think I um, mentioned Shana Golden Pershbacker at the beginning of of the work of the, that she has really looked at how the identities of country musicians have m- maybe begun to find more of a voice, where whereas before they were in the fringes, and, and looking at trans artists and and in the communities that she's engaged with, so. I think that there is a space for other genres to be answering this urgent call that we're finding um, to resist and to express whether they're encoded or or overt, this kind of shared resistance across genres.
1: Well, I think you definitely make a good point that's probably every genre of music can be a site of resistance and, um, you know, country music is a great example or has a history within it that has been maybe um, uh, forgotten or erased as with Rhiannon Giddens, who who so much of her work is about finding um, and, oh, I know. Well, I definitely want to talk to her in just a minute about that in just a minute. But, you know, that so much of her work is about reminding people of the black roots of music that we now think of as, as, uh, you know, more white genres, bluegrass and country and string trio, you know, string band music, all of that. So I think that's all really important. I I do, but I also take the point that you were saying that, um, there are still these dominant ideas of what, um, what sorts of music are more overtly sites of resistance than others. And, you know, if Miranda writes Hamilton 30 years from now, maybe the you know, it's a different, he uses different kinds of uh, of musical styles, you know, because our, you know, does hip hop start to lose that sort of history of resistance as it becomes more and more straight pop music? Maybe country becomes a site of resistance in a way that it really doesn't seem to be in the larger conversation right now. So, right. you know, yes.
2: those, those things do change over the- time a point one of the panelists made in that Smithsonian roundtable I just mentioned, um, they said that in the realm of in the genre of hip hop, for example, which is uh, nearing its fiftieth birthday, we're, we're we're coming, we're getting closer to it. That you look at a group like tribe called Quest and then you look at a group like Migos who at the Grammys they're going to be in maybe in the same category for hip hop but their music sounds completely different but it's still all within this genre and so I think that's real, that's so fascinating to think about what could happen to the how Hamilton and American musical how might it reflect what the predominant or prevailing or perceived genre of resistance for the majority of his songs what would that look like in in 30 years i think that's a great question
1: (laughs) well let's definitely talk about reanand giddens who i would say is my favorite uh my personal favorite singer right now has been for years. She grew up in Greensboro where I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina too. So I, I totally feel like this weird kinship with her because of that. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, um, you specifically talk about two of her songs which are inspired by her research into the experience of enslaved people and enslaved women um, particularly. I think perhaps more than any other artist I can think of she is able to um convert what is a real scholar's interest in history to into music that um that's grounded in that without being weirdly academic or or off-putting in it, you know in in some way um I just—it's such a talent to be able to do that. I can't think of anyone else who who can do it the way she does. So I would love for you. Just just to talk a little bit about how you see Rhiannon Giddens um, participating in these in, in these topics that you're talking about in the book.
2: Wonderful. Yes, I love that. For example, in Songs of Our Native Daughters, this wonderful album that I highly recommend. That there are, in addition to liner notes. There's a bibliography of suggested readings, which is yeah, not common to see in in liner notes. And it's specifically a bibliography toward um, bettering the understanding for her listeners to also become readers and to learn about the racism that's baked into our American soil and to kind of think about how we might retell this story in a more equitable way. And it's it was so powerful to me that she, in addition to incorporating these encoded gestures that are so meaningful for my analysis, that as you said, she's out there doing the work. She's representing not only as an insanely talented, wonderful musician, but also as a researcher who's, Fully able to engage her audience, it's it's incredible, and so I'm intrigued and in awe of that ability for her. The other thing that is so striking to me um, in these works that I've discussed and and in her other works is this kind of intersectionality that's there. You know, she she's a black woman and as i talk about in chapter 2 black women and girls so much are at that intersection of racism of classism of sexism and so it's something that she can speak directly to and i want i want to hear everything that she has to say i i want to hear everything that she has to sing about it and that that goes back to earlier in our discussion with the reaction to the the critiques of white people being fascinated by the This is America video as kind of trauma foreign. And I responded that part of this book, part of this reflection and thinking about individual experiences, like the one Giddens is educating her audiences about is to sit with my own whiteness and to think about my own racism that I you know it's not it's not about the the work of saying i'm not a racist it's about saying i'm anti-racist and yet i have benefited from a society that has privileged me and so i want to sit back and and foreground other voices such as hers and i think she does it so powerfully and so beautifully
1: Well, I actually I think her two songs, which I've never seen critiqued as trauma porn, could actually come under that critique. I
2: I I was talking about This is America for sorry Uh, if that was No, no, no. But but
1: what I no, I understood that. No, what I was gonna say though Mm -hmm. is I think that she I think people could say that about it because when she sings about the heartbreak and the she's so empathetic about the enslaved people that she's singing about. And she really at the purchaser's option, which is one of the songs that you talk about, she takes on the persona of an enslaved woman. And I think that, I think those songs are a great, a great sort of, not that every example of what people have been calling black trauma porn is, is comes under this, but I think for her songs and for this is America and others that are critiqued in that way. I think that, the other side of that that is shown in those songs is the deep empathy and love that these um, works show for the subjects of the violence that they're talking about right that that um even this is america i think i think that if we if i could imagine childish gambino he's he is showing the violence that these people that you know, that his community and, and people like him that look like him are constantly subjected to, but there's also this sort of deep empathy and caring for those same people, right? And I really see that in Rhiannon Giddens' work so much that she, she does make me also as a white woman empathize and understand the um, the experience of enslavement in a way that nothing else helps me understand, but it's coming from a place of real love for those people that she is embodying and that she is singing about, and maybe even for. And and I and I think that that is um, it, that's not trauma porn to me, right? And it's not just for not just for white people and for the that's education right. of white people. I think. Yeah.
2: Um, I I really like that parallel between the two videos and uh, interpreting, receiving the 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 more positive aspects of the, of the effect of this is America of the video for it. And it it occurs to me that they, the videos start and we see someone seated uh, solitary in, in the beginning. There's a, i'm I'm processing it right now but i I think that there's something very intimate about that setting that also invite that invites the listener the audience to engage to react in a positive way I, I agree with you that I think it's much more obvious and at the purchaser at the purchaser's option because you have these wonderful animated graphics and kind of an arc above her almost in a sense of, flight or of triumph uh, that there's this kind of there's this kind of happiness that will be there regardless this strength and perseverance that will be there that is displayed so beautifully
1: Well, as we wrap up, um, I want to ask you one final question, actually uh, sort of bouncing off of what you were talking about with this video for At The Purchaser's Option. Um, For a book written by a musicologist and, you know, at its center a lot about music, you spend an enormous amount of time um, in analyzing and talking about visual elements, whether that's you know, what the dance looks like or the elements of the, uh, what a video looks like. Um, you know, what a performance looks like you talk about the Beyonce performance of formation, for instance, and the costumes used in that. Um, and I, I'm wondering, do you think there's something, um, that musicians feel is so important about visual elements that, that sometimes it can really even overwhelm the music or, or, ch- change the uh, meaning of the music in a sort of fundamental way. I'm particularly thinking of formation, which if you hear it without any visual elements at all, really you wouldn't, I don't think anyone would associate Black Lives Matter, the Black Panther Party, Katrin, you know, Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. Um, none of those things come to mind in that song, yet the visual elements that she's used in performance and in video of that have completely you know, completely change oh, the way 100%. Uh,
2: of,
1: uh, you know, of the message that comes across with that song. So why do you think those other elements are so powerful? And why would musicians choose those elements that maybe get their point across more pointedly than their, than their music does?
2: Yes. I think they're so powerful because they add to the performance. They can add to the meeting. They can heighten. They can in some cases change as, as you said, if you just heard, I happened to be, I happened to hear formation before I saw the, the video for it. Well, that's not true. No, I did see the Super Bowl performance. I didn't see her music video, which was calculated, released the day before her performance at the Super Bowl. And that is more overtly, you can see more state. There are protesters, there's people doing graffiti, there is a line of police officers in front of which a black a young black boy is dancing and and the protesters are holding up hands up, don't shoot signs and the police officers are the ones who end up raising their hands and It's these kinds of things that I think are so powerfully adding to the music that we're hearing and that I think we had this discussion before we started recording, so I'm glad that you asked this question uh, but I'm so fascinated by looking at these really non-traditional modes of analysis where I'm not just saying, I'm not saying at all, all right, we're sitting down with a score and have we successfully navigated from tonic to dominant or in what interesting or unusual ways might that have happened uh, formally? How many sections is this this song? Or, you know, if there's a musical detail that I thought was interesting in the song, I will refer to it. But by and large, this book, is I I'm trying to, aim for uh, as wide an audience as i can i want it to be accessible i think that there's so many different ways of receiving music that can be enhanced by the visual markers by the kinds of uh, dancing what we're seeing the lighting uh, distortion things that we might hear that maybe it's a fuzzy bass line or maybe there's something that that is adding to maybe just the lyrics or the the music itself to kind of go beyond that. And particularly for popular music, that's the the work of the sociologist Nick Crossley really grounded my discussion because he makes such a powerful point that these kinds of gestures, these visual markers, these sonnet cues that we might have, that they can actually raise consciousness. And I'm fascinated by that concept. And that is what made that mode of analysis so much so powerful for me where the you know what we were talking about before before we hit record where i had considered as one of uh, my methodologies to talk about performativity um, you know, and thinking about how something can change based on the way it is performed. And ling- this has linguistic origins. John Austin, I think in the 1940s, did did work on this. And then a- Judith Butler has done a lot um, in the, the music, in the field of music. But that term just started to garner so much criticism, especially um, in the social justice movements that were came to the fore um, and in the midst of the pandemic that's disproportionately affecting the lives of minorities. And so I steered away from that term. And I think that the, the concept of, you know, these gestures raising consciousness, that there's multivalence, there's multiple meanings, I think that actually works better for the range of types of music that I discuss in the book. I mean, I'm biased, but that, that's I landed there because it it seemed to fit better. The more I the more I did research and wrote. Well.
1: This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. And my name is Kristen Turner. This is New Books in Music. And I've been talking to Katie Rios about her book, This is America, Race, Gender, and Politics in America's Musical Landscape, published in 2021 by Lexington Books. Thank you so much for joining me, Katie. This was really fun.
2: I loved it. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. You are so welcome.